Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So now, without further ado, we have Sam Lipsight who is the author of the story collections Venus Drive, named one of the top 25 books of its year by The Voice Literary Supplement, and The Fun Parts, and four novels, Hark, The Ask, The Subject, Steve, and Homeland, which was a New York Times notable book and received the first annual Believer Book Award. He's also the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. He lives in New York City and teaches at Columbia University. And so I always like to put in a um, quote, an, a blurb for, you know, during my... Intro, but this one is maybe the best one I've ever read. Uh, Gary Stanghart says, who's super, author of Super Sad True Love Story, says, Madcap and full of love, laughter, and unexpected beauty, not to mention the world's greatest bone marrow smuggling scheme. If Hark doesn't make you stalk Sam Lipsight and try to break up his marriage, then you are not human. Here he is. Thank you, guys. Uh, I'm just going to raise this a little bit. It's really nice to be here. Uh, I remember reading from my first book maybe 18 years ago in the store. and uh, it's, uh, I always love coming back here. And uh, So thank you for coming tonight. I really don't know what Gary Steingart was talking about, but <laughs> I was grateful for the, the nice words. I'm going to uh, just read a bit from the book. I'm not going to set anything up. I'll just move from bit to bit, and uh, we'll see what happens. But I'll start at the beginning. Listen, before Hark, was it ever harder to be human? Was it ever harder to believe in our world? The weather made us wonder. The markets had, the wars. The rich had stopped pretending they were just the best of us and not some utterly other form of life. The rest, the most, could glimpse their end on earth in the parched basins and roiling seas, but could not march against their masters. They slaughtered each other instead, retracted into glowing holes. Hark glowed too. He came to us and was goldeny. It wasn't that Hark had the answer. It was more that he didn't. All he possessed, he claimed, were a few tricks or tips to help people focus. At work, at home, out for coffee with a client or a friend. Listen, before Hark, was it ever harder to find focus? Hark gathered his tips together, called it mental archery. Pretty silly, he liked to say. But some knew better. Some were certain he had a secret, a mystery, a miracle. For what was mental archery but the essence of Hark? And what was the essence of Hark but love? In this hurt world, how could that hurt? The hunters of meaning had found no meaning. The wanters of dreams were dreamless. Many now drifted toward Hark Mourner. This is like the back story. The front story is about a bunch of people and a movement they launched under the banner of Hark, a movement that maybe meant nothing at all 
or maybe it did mean something. It's tough to tell. The past is tricky, often half-hidden, like a pale, flabby young man flung naked into a crowded square. The past doesn't stand there, Grant ganders. The past clasps its crotch, scurries for the cover of stanchions, benches. History hides. That's its job. It hides behind other history. Fraz Penzig, one of the front story people, knows all about it. He used to teach some history, though he hasn't taught it in a while, not since the middle school cut staff by a third. His wife, Tova, told him that life is not a zero-sum game, but Fraz senses that if it were, he would be the zero-sum. Lucky for him that Tova is still employed. He's grateful for the medical, though he happens to have his health at the moment. Not that it's something you can ever truly own or bequeath, like a house or a houseboat or a parcel of land in the hills, but Fraz does have his health. Oh, maybe he feels frail on occasion, a tad pulped, bone shot, frequently fevered, on the verge of the verge of death, but make no mistake, he's hardy. His twinges, his spasms, his stabby aches, they're chronic, like all the other minor hurts, the gym injuries, the sprains achieved mysteriously on the can. He's terminal, but not quite near the terminus. Like when he had that raisin on his head, went to the raisin doctor. It's nothing, the doctor said. Nothing? I mean, it's something. It's just what people get on the way down. You want I lightsaber that bad boy off? Also, 46 years on this hard turd of a world, and Fraz's mind is still, by his lights, pure silk. He knows younger types already fried or brined, not just with drugs or booze, but merely from rising in the morning, moving about in their private biospheres of panic and decay, the hours at work, the hours of work at home, the hours of work with spouses, fathers, mothers, children, the stresses laced into the simplest tasks, the fight or flight responses to kitchen appliances, not to mention the mighty common domes with which the individual bubbles ven, the fouled sky, the polluted food, the pharma-fed rivers full of sad-eyed oxytrout, the genes on outlet shelves in their modalities of size, skinny fit, classic fit, fat shepherd fit, all dyed a deep cancer blue, and the wave rot, of course, the pixel-assisted suicide, the screens, the screens, the screens. Yes, Fraz is lucky, privileged if you please, not just to be alive, but to still live here, his locus, his home grove, the city that never sleeps, but paces its garret in a nervous rage, the city of his kin. Once he had some vague ambitions, semi-valuable skills. Now he tutors school kids part-time, does favors for an old friend of his late father. He's also lucky Tova's affections don't hinge on his ability to generate revenue, or maybe his, her affections hinge on nothing now. But fie on such wallow world musings. Fie on these flurries of own negs. Today he will shrug off the cape of self-hate. Fraz has upsides. He's a doting father. He's one of Hark's apostles. He spreads the word. Also, he's rich in nutrients, solid from the gym, with, despite a certain overspreading doughiness, some noteworthy detail on his tries and delts. Truth is, he'd rather be a male waif, but he got Jude, he can say it, on the genetics. His narrow band of endomorphic choice will always come down to this, lard barn or semi-cut chunk. 
Today, he's headed downtown for a meeting with the Mental Archery Brain Trust. Kate Rumpler, the young heiress who funds their institute. Teal Baker Cassini, the discipline's leading intellectual light. And Hark Mourner himself, their radiant, inscrutable guru. They will take their booth at the Chakra Khan, sip kale and peppermint toddies. They have much to discuss. Demonstration videos, scheduled appearances, the true arrow, a new feed on Harkub. Fraz wishes they could meet at a coffee bar, or a full-service bar, or a full-service meat cart. <laughs> he likes the street meat, the tangy skewers. He doesn't mind the toddies, but the candles, the garden scents, menace his dainty machismo. Listen, such are the sacrifices one makes for the cause, for mental archery, for love. Today, Hark and Fraz ride north toward some bluffs above the Hudson. Pickering, New York, once the largest manufacturer of frozen waffles in the country, has invited Hark to speak on the rudiments of mental archery. Near the town, an ancient billboard juts from a cliff. Boys in earth-toned plastic helmets clutch honey-brown, frost-stippled discs. The tagline reads, gentlemen, start your toasters. Fraz recalls this ad campaign from his childhood, though he remembers it as, gentlemen, start your waffles. Could the company have survived longer with his version? Fraz berates himself for foolish speculation, then berates his inner berater for stifling winsome or playful thoughts. For from such lazy perambulations through the noggin's grottos, profundity can effloresce, ideation's lush, dark bloom. But now he's thinking too much. Clumps of overthought thoughts accrue, cloud him. Fraz switches to a vacant setting, watches the roadside world slide by. Fields, houses, malls, rivers, malls. In mental archery, this is called unstringing your bow. Hark unstrings his bow a lot, falls into silence, self. Fraz turns from the window to study Hark, the soft electrics of those gold-flecked green eyes, the ninja sinews in his neck, the spiky, creamy meringue of his hair. Sometimes Hark appears born of a fabled tribe from a fold in space. Today, he's a young man on a bus. He hunches, scribbles in a battered yellow journal. When Hark does speak, his voice is an enchanted river with roars and hushes and thick crystal swerves. It carves a course for Fraz to follow, to flow toward, out from his fetid backwaters, his brack stink. Fraz met Hark by chance in a bookstore. He ducked in out of the summer heat to kill time before a tutoring gig. The streets were a hot, greasy griddle, and Fraz was bent on the assassination of a tiny segment of time. Also, he wanted a book. He was depressed about the political situation, and he wanted a book that was either about the political situation or not about the political situation at all. This book would either explain with unerring exactitude the intractable shittiness of the political situation, or it would transport him to another place, a magical forest of shittinesslessness, for example, or perhaps transport him to another time, a time that did not flinch in the face of Fraz's determination to kill it, that did not almost literally, but not obviously literally, fall to its knees, if time can be said to have knees, which surely it can't, and beg for its feckless life. Yes, he was depressed. Or was he just sensitive? Maybe his was the reasonable response to the situations, the political situation, the economic situation, the situations at home with Tova and the kids, 
or to bring it into Harkian focus a bit more, the Tova situation, what was actually probably literally known to Tova as the Fraz situation. One had to see his perspective on these things. He could sense Tova's displeasure, her weariness. The qualities in Fraz she once claimed to adore were maybe not such adorable qualities anymore. He wanted a book to tell him what to do about all these situations. He knew there were books like this, though he'd never read them. But he didn't see any books in the bookstore. He saw a man instead, and a dozen other people in metal chairs. A hand-lettered sign on the table read, Mental Archery with Hark Mourner. A pile of stapled pamphlets lay beside it. Tova's on the train with the twins. She sits between them, keeps them yoked in relatively loose pro-wrestler chokeholds. They are temporarily immobilized and thus unable to assault each other or fellow riders, both of which are distinct possibilities with these maniacs, especially this morning. Meanwhile, she texts emendations to her supervisor's proposal to the provisional head of development at the Blended Learning Enhancement Project. Her supervisor, Cal Kronstadt, possesses what Tova knows the business community deems leadership qualities, meaning he's equal parts fool and lout, a human facsimile on a ceaseless quest to collect his salary and cover his butt. Apropos of which, the reason she's here on the subway restraining her kids in semi-legal grappler grips instead of already at her desk is because one or both of her children have, as she put it as concisely as she could on the phone to the doctor, concerns of the ass. More specifically, assworms. Tova may have assworms too. What happened was that all of their assholes started to itch and Tova looked the symptom up, discovered a detailed photograph of a hairy, nearly microscopic worm. Somebody had earned enough trust from this creature to achieve a lively, candid shot as the critter regarded the camera with unamused scorn mostly expressed through what Tova supposed were eyes, but on further inspection might have been anal orifices themselves. Tova tried to call Fraz, but hasn't been able to reach him. He could be tutoring or doing a favor for Mr. Dersh, or most likely cleaning and jerking, perhaps at the gym, more likely at home. The twins' noses nearly touch in Tova's double clinch. Jesus, Mom, stop, let me go, David says. Seriously, says Lisa. Hush it, guys. The names of her children sometimes embarrassed Tova. They were Fraz's idea. He declared himself the creative one, which is how people, men, describe themselves when they aren't the competent ones. <laughs> Tova has a degree in poetry and two chapbooks, even if that was a thousand lives ago, but somehow he bulldozed her on the kids' names. Tova loosens her choke grips. The twins flop back in their seats, rub their necks, groan. They peer about the car for pitying looks, or perhaps an undercover agent from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Bitch Fuck Moms to bust their mother for abuse. But the other riders, ingrates, ignore them. Grown-ups are sick, thinks Lisa, and maybe David does too, since their eight-year-old twin minds beam thoughts and emotions back and forth, or at least that's what it feels like, or what people tell them it's supposed to feel like. Tova asks her children if their assholes still itch. Not as much, David says. Not as much, Lisa says, mimics the high, sweet tone of her brother's voice. Mom, she's bullying me. Live with it, Lisa says. Both of you, stop at once. Tova's itch is faint at best. Could it be that new cheap detergent Fraz bought, so proud of his thrift? She never did see a worm, except in the photograph, but it looked so real and wanting to nestle in the rectums of her family. 
Did she overreact? How can an overworked working mother overreact? The intestinal canals of your precious spawn teem with maggots. Your husband slacks off on a job that barely keeps him in breath mints, and your dolt of a supervisor gets promoted based on your due diligence. Overreaction is an impossibility. Maybe the doctor will have some cold, soothing cream. A nice, cooling ointment or salve in her butt could absolve this galling day, so long as Fraz doesn't figure it for a goddamn invitation. Days later, and this is many days later, <laughs> but don't worry about it. <laughs> days later, blocks from Kate's loft, a gentleman reposes in a dark gastropub with a plate of pickled emu eggs and a tankard of Upper Peninsula ale. He writes with a felt-tip pen on a napkin. One gander at her unbelievable peach-shaped derriere terminated the dream of parliamentary democracy pronto. Drivel, the gentleman rejoices. Unlike his wife, Fraz never dreamed of a wordsmith's fame. He's a visual animal, a natural screen bard. Maybe not natural. He resents, for instance, all the equipment involved in the so-called filmmaking process. Questions of composition, of light and shadow, bore him. Stories and actors seem tedious. Documentaries, subjects, too ponderous, preachy. Movies are a mammoth drag. He never watched that many, but his desire to be a major director carried him for years. The short he made in college, Wizened Zack, explored the suffering of his uncle, a retired high school math teacher with late-onset dyscalculia. Fraz, who dedicated his film to despair, won a tiny amount of prize money. He ran through it quickly, which is what happens with tiny amounts of prize money. <laughs> the output, you could say, has dwindled. But during the last Hark shoot, Fraz watched the Scuzz auteur schnitz snake around the set, pursue Riefenstahlian angles on Hark, not to mention reaction shots from the crowd, the astonishment, the recognition, the nascent faith. Filmmaking looked fun. This morning, in the shower, attempting to jet wash his anus from a frisk position against the tiles, I know I keep <laughs> staying on the same theme. <laughs> Fraz had an epiphany. He knows epiphanies are passe, but this one overcame categorical obsolescence. Triptych, women and sadness. Fraz will make a film in three sections, each about a woman who is beautiful and sad and how the principles of mental archery might free her from the fetters of Anadonia. His mother will be the first panel, Tova the second. The film will employ a rigorous neo-emo sensibility, warts and all, but also in parts wartless. What is beauty? Is it truth or just random molecularity? Is beauty in the eye of the beholder? Does it crush the beholder's eyeballs, the souls of the beheld? Plus, what is sadness? Plus, what are women? He will take on the tough questions. <laughs> Maybe he will learn something about his subjects or himself. Maybe he will learn how to talk to Tova again. 
He's been working on that. They both have in their counseling sessions with Teal. This was Hark's idea. After Fraz mentioned that he had a Tova situation and that Tova had a Fraz situation, Hark suggested they embark on some couple's therapy with Teal, who had not completed the clinical qualifications for her social work degree, but whose life wisdom and experience with mental archery might compensate. Tova scoffed, but agreed to one session, after which she was converted. Here was a person, she told Fraz, who could comprehend Tova's pain with proper nuance. Teal was brilliant, like Tova, and had done time, which Tova sometimes felt she was doing with Fraz. Fraz recalls an exchange from a recent session. Tova, I just feel this distance. Like when Fraz makes a joke, I know even before he's finished that I won't find it funny. Whereas I used to laugh at all his jokes. We laughed so much together. Now, even if we're watching a comic on TV, like an intelligent, funny one, if Fraz laughs, I just shut down, get distant, icy. It's me, really. Teal, what do you mean you? Tova, when I'm not happy, I disassociate. I'm somewhere else for a while. Fraz, it's true. It's like she's on another planet. A glaze comes over her face. It's like she's teleported out of her body, left it there to operate on autopilot. Teal, where are you, Tova? Where do you go? Tova, I don't really know. It's a brightly lit place, well scrubbed, kind of rustic, a farmhouse. There's a man there. He's tall and lean with a beard. We're together and we're safe. Fraz, sounds like your father. I don't know where the farmhouse comes from. Tova, I like farmhouses. Teal, is this man your lover? Tova, I don't think so. It's just that we keep each other safe. Teal, do you have lovers in this rustic place, this safe farmhouse setting? Tova, I'm satisfied. It's like the whole deal, the farmhouse, the field, the trees. They are all my lovers. Fraz, she'd rather fuck the scenery than me. <laughs> Teal, accept it. Fraz, what? Teal, or fight for her. Fraz, fight her rural fantasia. <laughs> Teal, you want her back on your ding-dong? Fraz, yes. Teal, then string your goddamn bow and declare war on her dumbfuck bourgeois fantasia. <laughs> Tova, you have to destroy my fantasia, Fraz. <laughs> Fraz, is this what couples therapy is normally like? <laughs> Teal, I don't know, I just started. I guess I'll read just one more little bit, if I can find it. Maybe I can't. Sorry. I did such a good job marking my pages. Oh, there's one more little bit. This is just a little, even more fun with Fraz and Tova, but. <laughs> the twins scale a steep rock at the park. Fraz supervises their climb from a far off bench. No parent can prevent the unimaginable yet constantly imagined tragedy. You buckle them up in cars and teach them how to cross the street. You train them to wash their hands after pooping, warn them off unbleached needles, jack off nooses. That's about it. Or there's more, but not much. Not much you can control. The rest is asteroids, brakeless buses, brakeless men with machetes, guns. Besides, kids need to make mistakes. 
abrasions and bruises, fractures and sprains. They're just the body's pop quiz stickers, life's gold stars. Fraz is more or less a free-range father, but of the anxious type. He lets them run loose while his gut's not. Still, it beats cinching them up in his fear. Better to hang back, sip his cortado, nibble his scone. He watches them now as they move across the rock face. Lisa, the acrobat, climbs with blithe joy. Sturdy David studies every crevice. Fraz shouts an encouragement, probably inaudible, scrolls through the news in his hand. The news is this. We will all maul each other for the last tin of peaches fairly soon. You can forget about a wage increase. The cost of living will henceforth be your life. The ads, the advertorials pop and roll. The sponsored content. Oh, to be sponsored content. Fraz is, like most people, unsponsored content. It's moments like this that Fraz knows he's made the right decision. Mental archery is the road back to an original wholeness, if such a thing exists, or at least it's the key to inner relief. He's lived too long in exile from himself, faking his freedom, refusing even to wear a tie, even to family funerals, even a clip-on, extolling the virtues of porn to his wife, hiding out in the gym, stuffing himself with fried pickles and an experimental mix of mint and mango ice cream. He's weary of the contrarian pose, tired of his schemes, the funny t-shirts, the penny stocks, the fantasy bandy. Always the same, lose some cash, some dignity, fold. But it's different now. Fraz feels called to mental archery and what may lie beyond, and definitely to Hark, or the idea of Hark, or the radial heat of Hark. Others, it appears, are also pulled. Are they as sad as Fraz? Do they look to the future and see nothing but debt, uncertainty, decay, eternal healdom? Do they glimpse the political situation, the economic situation, the grave matrices of situations, the grim and inexorable shift? Do they know how dire it's all become? Turn back at what you're running from, Hark says. Draw the bow. The twins trot over, twerped by the cliff. David bleeds from cuts on his lip his cheek. What happened? Lisa hit me. He fell, Lisa says, like a bitch. <laughs> David punches her hard in the crotch. They both sob, clutch Fraz on the bench. My babies, Fraz says. Daddy loves his babies. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Fraz gathers them to him. He chokes up whenever he remembers that they're his children and for all their swagger, just easy marks for the world. Maybe he and Tova were selfish for having kids, the heat, the melt, the universal fester, but he'll live with the crime. He loves Lisa and David in a desperate way, and to crypto-Malthusians and other critics of reproduction, he has this to say. You'll count your blessings when my kids are around to wipe your scabbed and desiccated asses. Nursing home attendant, the only job to exist in the future. All of civilization reduced for those few who can afford it to one vast plastic palace of deliquescence. Everyone else flopped out on final islands of scorched sand, beseeching the sea to take them. Tip my children well, you bastards. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So that's Hark.
Um, <laughs> uh, there's more, more to it. I hope, I hope you uh, get a chance to enjoy. Do you have any questions? Concerns? <laughs> Hi. I mean, I think it has a vital role. I think it's always had a vital role for humans. I'm, I mean, I was saying this, people was, I get a lot of this uh, questions about, you know, right now, can you be humorous about anything? And I understand why people have that feeling, but I think that humor and satire have been part of the, the human survival kit for a long time. And I mean, I was joking the other night with some people about how, you, I can imagine people saying, well, you can't write this now, now that Caligula's emperor, you know, I mean. <laughs> so I think that we've gone through horrible times in this world, obviously, and, and humor is one of the things that, that gets people through, as long as it's the kind that's, you know, taking on the absurdity and the, and the power and not working in its service. Well, I, th you know, I, I'm not just sitting here waiting for it all to end. I, I have my own children. I hope the, there is hope. I hope there are pockets of change. I hope there are places where we can make it better. So uh, I think it's both. I think you have to be have, take an honest look at the world, but you also have to, you know, you can't just kiss it goodbye. You have to uh, embrace some idea that something can be salvaged, I think. Yeah, and I don't, you know, we also have, get very apocalyptic, like it's all gonna end right this minute, when in fact it, it could just suck for a really long time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we have to be ready for that big disappointment. <laughs> Yeah. Characters with their own specific chapters and more balanced characters and characters. Uh, so what was the process like? Well, that was a huge, like you just said, that was a big shift for me. I'd never written, I'd written stories in third person, but I'd never written a novel in third person. I'd never had a big canvas like that and tried to dip into all of these different characters. And so I had to kind of, even though I'd you know, always read books that did that, I still didn't really, you don't understand how they work for you as you're writing them. So I had to kind of relearn a lot of stuff for myself, um, and so I threw out a lot of pages and and revised a lot until I, I found a way in. And one of the ways was finding this kind of way that I could have this more kind of old-fashioned, omniscient narration that would come in at times and, and frame it, but then also allow myself to dip into the minds of all the various characters at different times, and even within a scene. I mean, I violated like every workshop rule that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, but I think sometimes uh, you got to do that. <laughs> Hi. Some of the names in the book are very 
I, I just, I think I, once I had the name Hark, a lot of other things coalesced, and I, it was more, it began as just a sound. I really liked, I liked saying the word Hark, and I liked, I liked that it meant listen and other things, but I, I felt like a strong word and reminded me of, you know, Ark and Shark, I guess. But uh, I, I, I had a kind of a, a sonic affection for it at first, and then, and then built around it. And so I think that happens with a bunch of names. I, I, I have to find the right name, and then I can sort of start to understand the character a little bit. Yeah. I, did, I found myself discovering. I was writing this character, and I, I just thought, well, she's a lot like Tova. And then I had that thought, you know, there's no rule that says she can't be Tova. <laughs> it, they're, they're all my stories and books. I can do with that. So, uh, and there have been other characters over the years that have migrated from one book to another, and so uh, there was even precedent for that. But it was nice to imagine her older in a different place with her life, and... Uh, I, that was a new thing, because even though I'd kind of moved characters around at different times, I hadn't really kind of thought about, okay, now she's older and she's in a different place in her life. And the last time we left her off in these short stories, we had maybe one idea of where she was heading, and now she's here. And so that was a lot of fun, kind of creating that. And then, and so in a way, she almost feels like someone I know. Like, yeah. Yeah, the last few chapters. Um, it had a different ending, and I was not satisfied with it. And I worked for a while trying to figure, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but um, <laughs> but uh, I, I worked for a while, but you know what it is. And <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I worked for a while to get, and then it was kind of a question of, for those who have read the book, kind of taking a sort of leap that I had to be, kind of talk myself into for the end because the original end was a kind of safer ending and kind of a uh, a way to be like, hey, I was just, to be completely kind of in a, I, I would say a guarded place and, and I, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be a little more exposed at the end. In the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, I'm, I mean, in the beginning, I'm a, I guess maybe I have a great interest in each sentence and following from sentence to sentence and letting, sometimes even letting the sounds of the sentences guide where I'm going. And then I bring other kinds of analysis to it later. Then I start thinking about the story and the characters. But initially what has to excite me is there has to be some charge in the sentences themselves or I'm not interested in finding out more about what, the, what I'm doing. And that's how I start, and that's how I then discover what the story is and what the characters are and all that. Hey. Oh, I just meant, you know, I was doing more of that 19th century where you could just pop into anyone's head at any time. And, you know, whereas often in workshops people talk about, you know, well, that's a point of view violation. You can't really. <laughs> They're handing out tickets. and uh, So, um, I mean, basically every great book from the past doesn't pay attention to any of that stuff, but there, there are what, some ideas about what you can do, and especially in short stories, got codified at a certain point. Um, 
I didn't I don't think I break, broke everything. I'm just <laughs> there were a few things where I said, uh, I think I maybe told someone not to do this once, but I'm gonna do it now. <laughs> right? <laughs> and you can, you know, <laughs> but you can, I guess, yeah. Hi. Okay. Well, was there a question though? Okay, no, I mean, I, I understand that. I mean, I, so you're saying that the book's on a, from a moral standpoint or from character? Yeah, I mean that, that's nice. I, I, you know, I, I don't always see books even for students as I think that you can get moral instruction from them, but I don't see them as as necessarily that that's the reason to to read them and to be kind of excited about books that can show you life or commiserate with you about suffering and maybe you know rather than necessarily just teach you you know a certain set of values might be interesting and. Uh, so I mean, I think that first, the first thing for students is to get excited about reading a book. And why, why do they get excited? Maybe it's because something to do with the language or it reflects something that they feel is real, that they, f they feel the book is, is somehow connecting to 
their felt actuality rather than something like read this and you'll be a better person. That, that can sometimes be a problem. Well, I think we, well, I think we have the as obligation as parents to try to instill our values in our kids. But I think we want to expose them to all kinds of art and let them learn to make decisions themselves about about. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, even as some of my characters were ambivalent, I, was, I had children. So um, <laughs> I guess I was working out that ambivalence in the, <laughs> in the fiction and then just sort of, yeah. Um, so I, someone asked me before I had kids, you know, do you think it'll change your writing? And I said, God, if it doesn't, what kind of person am I? Like, that's, that would be really insane if it didn't. So I think that happens with everyone. And it's, it's always not always the same experience, but... Um, for, I just think it 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 widened some of my uh, sense of how people experience the world, and you know, I think I had a very a more kind of straight, a more limited sense of how I thought everyone's the same in some ways. But when you have kids, especially more than one, you begin to realize how pe people a lot of things do draw us together, and in some ways we're also very different, and that that's that's fascinating. And so I think that was part of what helped me too. Yeah. What, what does that kind of feel like? What, what process goes on there? Do you, do you panic and start writing right away, or do you? Well, I do panic, and and but I have people in my life who are able to say to me, "You remember the last time?" And so, that's really useful because I feel like it's never been like this before. Every time out, it just feels like now I I'm never going to write again, or I got nothing, or it's over, or. I've lost it or whatever, and there, and so I have people in my life who can say like, "Do you remember three years ago when you said the exact same thing?" And so <laughs> that that's useful. But yeah, I mean, I don't you don't know really until something else you catch something else. But so I will. I'm writing, trying to write stuff, and some of it's working out, and some of it's I'm throwing away. But I'll just keep doing that till I catch you know a bigger wave. One more question, Mr. Sulkis. Well, for me, it's never, I don't really have like an idea and then execute it. So like I might, I'm, maybe I'm walking around unconsciously, something's percolating, that happens all the time. But then I will sit down and write. And it's almost, I have to write a first draft. And then I say, oh, that's an idea for a short story. So I, I, I can't get the idea until I write something. So, and then I find out, oh, that's what I've been thinking about. That's the thing that's been buzzing. That's the thing that's been gnawing at me. Marvin Hagler is a special case. I've been carrying him in my heart for a long time. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.